Good morning, everyone. It uh, it's really is a pleasure to be here, a privilege to be here. Um, I'd just like to thank Chris in his absence for trusting me to preach this morning and um, to share in your journey with you as a church and just to see the amazing things that God is doing. And um, we're going to start in James this morning. I've been asked to speak on revival, so I'm going to do that. So we're going to start in James chapter 4. I know that you're used to having stuff on the audiovisual. I did uh, send through all my notes, but unfortunately my version of Keynote is a different version from your version of Keynote, and we did try to get it all up, but we couldn't. So I'm going to try and be as clear as I can uh, without the benefit of the AV. So apologies for that. But uh, I'm going to speak about revival. I know you've been doing a series on revival, and um, these are some thoughts that I have for you this morning, and I trust that they would be helpful. James is an amazing book. I've been preaching into James for the last four months at our church. I've had a series called Dazzling Christianity, and basically James is a book about revival. The whole book is about revival. And just the context of of the book of James for you, the first century of of, uh, the church was an amazing time for the church. You know, the day of Pentecost happened, and Peter preached, and the scripture says that uh, power came upon the disciples in Acts chapter 2. And 3,000 people were saved. Very, very exciting time to be a Christian. And uh, unfortunately, what happened is that in the midst of all this wonderful stuff, persecution breaks out against the church in Acts chapter 7. We see that. And Paul is the person most persecuting the church. And uh, in this first century, there's extraordinary growth, radical growth of the church at the same time. Things hadn't quite worked out as the the, the people had hoped they were going to work out. And what happened after this period of persecution is the whole church is scattered all across the Mediterranean basin, and it's discouraged, it's backfooted, it's, uh, it's contemplating and saying, well, God, why didn't things work out like we thought they were going to work out? And James is probably the first letter that was ever written to the church, all right? It's pre-Pauline. It's written before the letters of Paul. It's written before the Gospels. It's the first letter that anyone writes to encourage the believers, and it's, an, and it's an amazing, amazing letter. And uh, the first three chapters are just encouraging the, the church into uh, undoubting relationship with God, to be filled with faith and undoubting faith and wisdom from heaven that is promised from above and joy in the midst of trials. It's a brilliant book to uh, read and I'd encourage you to do that. And then James gets practical in, in, the, in the third chapter and he talks about practical outworking of this great salvation that we have. And so he says, be careful how you talk to people. Um, be careful of your tongue. Your tongue can sow good things, sow bad things. And then by chapter four, where we get to now, I just want to launch off here. He says, what causes fights amongst you? What causes quarrels amongst you? He's talking to the church and he, and he, says, he says, it's your desires that are at war within you and you ask incorrectly and so you don't receive from God. And he's being very practical with the church. And then he comes to the end of chapter four and he says this, and this is where I want to start. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so he's, he's preaching into this. He's, he's writing to this discouraged church. He's, he's writing to this backslidden, uh, backslidden church. He's writing to this worldly church. And he's trying to encourage them. And I believe that James could be writing to any church, many churches in the, in the UK right now. Because my conviction is, and I say this as a church person involved in leading a church, that most churches in the UK are backslidden, worldly, backfooted, 
and discouraged. And it's always amazing to me because whenever I visit a church, uh, like on leave now, I've been visiting various churches, and it's wonderful when you go to a, a church that is, is full of life, and uh, like this church this morning is f- full, and I know it's holidays, and probably not all your people are here, but it's full, and you get encouraged. But you know what I found is, 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 is the kind of uh, litmus test, if you like, is I was at Westminster Chapel the other day, and it was, it was full. It was wonderful to be with God's people and believers, and, and then I worked, walked out into St. James's Park, and there was just thousands of people. Thousands of people involved in their Sunday recreation. And we can get caught in a bubble sometimes, can't we? When we, we're together like this, we can think, oh God, you know, the church is doing well, and, and yet there are so many more thousands out, of, out there that don't know him. And so I want to encourage you with that this morning, that as we trust God for revival in church, in our churches, that it's going to spill out into the community and affect the community. So how do we define revival? I've been, I've been part of church leadership now for almost 20 years, and I've lived through some things that could be described as outpourings. I don't, uh, so I'm speaking to you this morning as a person who's never experienced revival, personally. I've certainly experienced some moves of the Spirit, and I hope one day I will experience revival in my lifetime. All right? But uh, how can we define revival? And I want to give you some quotes this morning of, of men that have lived through revival and experienced for themselves what revival is. And so here's some just to try and help us understand how we can think about revival. John Buchanan, who's a a church, church, church historian defined revival as the imparting of life to those who are dead and the imparting of health to those that are dying. That's a very good definition, but I, I want to encourage you that perhaps it needs to go further than that. Jonathan Edwards, who ministered in America 250 years ago, he defined revival as God's major means of extending his kingdom. And so he takes it a little bit further. And I've been thinking about this for a couple of months now as I've uh, been preparing to come and preach here. And one thing that's become obvious to me is as you start to try and define what revival is, you inevitably start to describe what revival is. And for me, that's quite encouraging because it certainly shows that revival is not an academic thing. It's not a theoretical thing. It's something that the church radically experiences under the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's a guy called Duncan Campbell as well who experienced revival in the Hebrides up here in the UK in the last century, he, he simply described revival as a community saturated with God. And so if I was to pick a title for my message this morning, it would be that, a community saturated with God. Charles Spurgeon, I'm sure you've heard of him, ministered here in London for many, many years, preached to an average of 6,000 people every weekend. His church was in a state of constant revival, and he said this, he said, a true revival is to be looked for in the church of God. In the church of God. And then it spills out and begins to affect the community. And I think many people think of revival as a shortcut to getting a whole lot of people saved. Well, it doesn't start like that. Revival starts in the church, in the believers, in you and me. It starts in us, and as God does something in us, it spills out into the community and starts to touch other people. And often that's a painful process because God has to cut away and he has to, he has to do some things in us before he can start releasing more to us. Douglas Brown, another guy in the UK that experienced revival himself. Many of you might have heard of the Keswick Convention. He said this in 1922, he's preaching there. He said, revival is a church word. It has to do with God's people. You can't revive the world. The world is dead in its trespasses and sins. You can't revive a corpse, but you can revitalize 
where there's life. Evan Roberts, Welsh Revival, 1904, he said, my mission is first to the church. When the churches are aroused in their duty, men of the world will be swept into the kingdom. A whole church on its knees is irresistible. Don't you love that phrase? A whole church on its knees is, is irresistible. Um, Rice Jones, Reese Jones, who also was preaching during the, during the, the Welsh Revival in 1904, he said this. If there was a slogan for this revival, it was this. Bend the church and save the people. Bend the church and save the people. Something has to start happening in the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I trust this morning you'll be encouraged as I share. So that's to try and define revival. The second question I'd like to look at is why do we need revival? And um, I've already alluded to the first thing. The first thing I want to say is because of our personal condition as believers. Our personal condition as believers. Um, There's a guy called Scotty Smith, a young American preacher that I I read, and he wrote a paragraph I'd like to share with you, which I think is incredibly powerful. He says this: "Until the day of Jesus, that Jesus returns, our natural drift as the people of God will always be towards spiritual atrophy, not spiritual entropy; towards self-serving idolatry, not God-centered worship." Towards using God, not serving Him. Towards salvation by us, not salvation by grace. Towards being coddled, not changed. Towards church as an ingrown club, not church as a missional community. Towards the protection of our tribe, not the welcoming of the nations. Towards hair-splitting factionalism and ugly schisms. Not diligence in preserving unity of the faith by the Spirit through the bond of peace. In short, I ask God for revival because it's the only power of Jesus, only the power of Jesus' resurrection is sufficient to keep sinner saints like you and I from contradicting the gospel even more than we do. It's incredibly challenging, isn't it? And um, I trust this morning as we journey together, as we just discuss a couple of these things, that we'd come to a point of recognizing that apart from the grace of God, that is, our, that is our natural bent. Apart from the grace of God, every single one of us tends towards religion, every single one of us tends towards legalism, towards moralism, to just doing the right thing. Every one of us. And I've had something of a journey in my own life as I've tried to lead our church in the last couple of years to rediscover the gospel at a deeper level for myself as a church leader. And thirdly, secondly, why do we need revival? Well, our nation needs the overflow of revival. And uh, I guess the the last year has been really interesting, challenging. Uh, Many of you, like me, watched the riots on the television And I hope, I want to say this gently, but I hope that uh, you were not surprised by that. You might have been shocked by the violence as I was, but I hope you weren't surprised by that because if you were surprised and if I was surprised by that, then we're not good students of the scripture because the scripture makes it quite plain that that is the inevitable consequence of a, a nation that turns its back on the gospel. Those things will happen. I don't say that in a condemning way. I agree with the PM. The PM says Britain is broken. I absolutely agree. The interesting thing for me is that we could point fingers to the looters and the robbers, but what is this, the same root was, is being in the, in the houses of parliament. 
So we have dishonest MPs that have bent the rules to get more money. And we have the news of the world impinging on people's personal freedom to give us some little titbits to satisfy the tabloids. This is all brokenness expressed in different ways. And I want to say to you, the most patriotic thing that you and I could do is to preach the gospel of Jesus. Most patriotic thing you and I can do right now is to preach the gospel of Jesus. I believe that acts of parliament can help, but the only thing that changes men and women from the inside out is the gospel of Jesus. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that can transform rule-bending MPs and brick-throwing, looting youths from the inside out. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that transforms the hearts of men. So my friends, I want to say to you that our nation is in a desperate need of a gospel awakening and that only comes from a revived church. <laughs> it comes from a revived church. It come, revived churches come from revived leaders who give themselves unalterably to being committed to a Christ-centered, gospel-centered, spirit-driven life. That's what revives churches. Revival from the Lord, it brings not only a radical impact into the community, but it also brings a personal intimacy with Jesus that no one can take away. That's what revival brings. Personal intimacy with God. There's a warm logic in the gospel that appeals to us. It's not, the gospel is never moralistic. It's never impositional. There's a warm logic in the gospel. Whenever you read the, Paul, the letters of Paul or the gospel, the gospels of Mark, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's always an appeal in the gospel. It's an appeal to God's people. And that's why I say to you, I believe it's God's word to the church in the UK right now. He's wooing his church. He's drawing his church. He's calling his church back to a primary intimacy with him. True revival transforms individuals. And individuals transform families. And families transform communities. And communities finally transform nations. I've been thinking about Colossians 1.27 over the last while in my own life. It's a brilliant, brilliant verse. Paul talking about the mystery of this thing, of the gospel, and he says this, this is the mystery that we proclaim, that we give ourselves to with all energy. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want to say to you, Christ in you is the hope for your marriage. Christ in you is the hope for your parenting. Christ in you is the hope for the schools that you might be teaching into. Christ in you is the hope for your business. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope for this green and pleasant land. We've been up to the Lake District for a couple of days and it really, on holidays, it is a green and pleasant land that we live in. It's a beautiful country. The hope for this nation is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And I believe any church that is truly revived will beat with a divine passion that is marked by authentic worship, God-centered worship, and at the same time is missional. It's got an unstoppable commitment to the Great Commission. That's what revival is. Um, Harry, Harry Reader is another American writer I've been looking at recently, and he said this, observing the 18th century Great Awakening, one, uh, he said one of the founding fathers said this, it seemed as if the whole world was going to church. It's interesting, eh? The whole world was going to church. And uh, rather poignantly observed that observation. But I want to say to you, perhaps it, was, it seemed like that, perhaps because the whole church was going into the world, that it seemed like the whole world was coming to church. 
And the question is, why don't we see that today? Why why aren't we experiencing that now, here and now? And perhaps the answer is that we need to ask God for revival in our own lives because the uncomfortable truth is that we don't really love each other, we don't really love the lost as we ought to because we don't really know the love of Christ as we ought to. And we far prefer the comforts of sleeping in on a Sunday, our families, the distraction of leisure, distraction of career, distraction of sport. We far prefer those things really over loving the lost, loving the broken, the things of the kingdom and church community. And I don't say that to discourage anyone or point a finger at anyone. I'm really trying to encourage you this morning in your own journey, your own walk with Jesus, that Jesus becomes the primary focus of your heart and your life. And I've had to look at my own life and say uncomfortably that over the last five years, perhaps the, um, the clear reflection or barometer of my own heart is how I spend my time, how I spend my money. And surely revival needs to come in me. I love what Acts 17.6 says. It's a pagan speaking in Acts 17.6 and he says of the Christians, he says, these people have turned the world upside down. (laughs) Don't you love that? These people have turned the world upside down, these Christians. And I wish I had more time because I'd love to speak to you about Tacitus and Suetonius and some Roman historians who write about what the impact of the first century church was. It is incredible. These people have turned the world upside down. Thirdly, why do we need revival? Because God promises it to us. And uh, I just want to give you a couple of scriptures. Psalm 85 verse 6. Will you not revive us again, your people, so that we might rejoice in you? Isn't that a beautiful promise? Psalm is crying out to God. God, would you revive us again so that our pe- your people can rejoice in you? And I think we can ask for revival. We can pray for revival because of the many promises that God has made to renew us, to refresh us, to revive his people before Jesus comes back. And uh, in various times in history, we've seen these great outpourings that are a reflection of that. So my encouragement to you is that God has called us as a church to be the first fruits of a resurrected people. He's called us as the church to be a preview of what is to come of the new earth, the new heaven. And that's why the Bible speaks about a new Jerusalem. It's a, we are a down payment. The church is a down payment of what is still to come in eternity. And uh, God wants to do that in us by the power of his Holy Spirit. And isn't the great promise of the scripture that if we ask for his spirit to be poured out, he's not going to give us, he's not going to give us a snake and he's, not, he's going to give us what we, what we ask for. And I, I want to encourage you with all my heart, let us be those that are asking, expecting and uh, with expectant hearts trusting that God would pour himself out in our generation. I love Habakkuk 2 uh, as well, rather. Habakkuk 3 verse 2, it says, Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. In the midst of the years, revive your work and make it known, and in your wrath, remember mercy. Let that be a cry of our hearts, and let that be a yearning of our hearts. And then the remaining time that I've got, I want to try and answer a third question. What brings revival? <laughs> and I want to say, I do want to look a little bit at church history because I think something of how what we expect revival is has been influenced by the last 300 years in terms of church history. I'd like to look at the first great awakening in a couple of minutes and the second great awakening. And uh, these are, happened in the 18th century. And to see what characterized the one and what characterized the other and what we can learn from both of those as we trust God for revival in our own, um, in our own generation. 
We could also look at the Reformation. We could also look at the first century church. We could look at the Welsh revival, et cetera, et cetera. But I think these are key revivals that will show you what I'm trying to drive at. The first great awakening. It was a period in the 17th century, 1730s onwards, um, which spread through the American colonies, but actually started with uh, Whitfield and the Wesleys here in, um, in England. And there was this great dissatisfaction with the Anglican Church at that time. It was largely moralistic, it was pietistic, it was dry, it was legalistic, and there was a sense of complacency that was bred in the believers. And for me, that is always a sign of, of legalism in a church, is where there's a complacency in people. There's no joy. There's no sense of, of the heart being enlarged. It's kind of just moralistic, okay? And so some, some guys like Whitfield rediscovered some of these brilliant biblical truths from the Reformation. Whitfield started reading Galatians, and he influenced, uh, he influenced Wesley. And so there was this rediscovery of Reformation truth around the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. And basically the gospel of grace was rediscovered. And that impacted the whole of the UK. And so Whitfield and Wesley started to travel across to the Americas and... Uh, it started to spread. And unlike the 1700s, which was largely a puritanical spirituality, this revival that was ushered in was something of a rediscovery of the grace of God. And so there was great emotion, there was great passion expressed in churches. You know, one of the signs for me of revival is, a, is, is great singing. Great singing. When you are revived from the inside out, you have something to sing about. Why do you think the Welsh Revival, why do you still think they sing bread of heaven at the rugby matches? Why do you think? Because they were revived, they had something to sing about. When you don't have anything to sing about, you just stand there. When you have a revelation of the grace of God, the magnificent grace of God in your life, you want to sing. You want to say, thank you, God. So why did this Great Awakening occur? Well, at the same time in Europe, the Enlightenment was happening. And the Enlightenment was emphasized logic and reason that we could understand the universe scientifically and this whole thing happening in the Enlightenment. And similarly, people be began to re realize, I can have a personal relationship with God. And actually, that is, what, that is what the Bible says, that I can have a personal relationship with Him. And so that's what these guys begin to rediscover. And Jonathan Edwards was the American great theologian and thinker that ministered in the eastern seaboard of America. And uh, he emphasized the whole thing of being saved by grace through faith. And his most famous sermon was one called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached it in 1741. And uh, that was something that sparked revival on the eastern seaboard. I've spoken to you about Whitfield and Wesley. I'd like to jump forward 100 years now we're coming to the 18th century, uh, 19th century, the 1800s, and there was a second great awakening in America, but this marked a fundamental change in how people viewed the gospel, okay? Before this, with Wesley and with Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, there was basically it was a Calvinist tradition that was uh, emphasizing the depravity of man and that we absolutely were dependent on God in every way for our salvation, all right? Along comes a guy called Charles Finney, who's a controversial man still to this day. He lived between 1792 and 18, 1875. And what he began to emphasize was our free will, that we can choose 
to respond to God or not. And this is not, this is not um, untrue. Of course, we have a free will. But heresy comes when we overemphasize one truth at the expense of another truth. And so what began to happen was that free will was so emphasized that the sovereignty of God was lost in the whole process. And um, Charles Finney did see amazing, uh, amazing uh, re- revival in the sense of huge meetings with lots of people. And uh, there's a guy called um, Dr. Horton, he wrote this, he, called it, he wrote an article called The Disturbing Legacy of Charles Finney, and he says this, he's the tallest marker in the shift from Reformation order orthodoxy, evident in the first great awakening under Edwards and Whitfield, to Arminian revivalism, evident from the second great awakening to the present. So Finney had this dramatic conversion, He said he experienced a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost, which was like a wave of electricity going through me. I'm quoting him directly. And he said, it seemed to come in waves of liquid love. And he was a lawyer by training. So he went out the next day and said uh, to his clients, I have a retainer from the Lord Jesus to plead his cause, and so I cannot plead yours. All right. So I'm not doubting that he had a great, uh, um, he was saved radically, and and he had the work of the Holy Spirit in him was, was amazing. I'm not doubting that at all, and God used him in an amazing way. But one of his most popular sermons was a sermon called this, Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. And you see, for me, that illustrates exactly what I'm trying to say. Finney's mantra was, can this teaching save people? One of the results of this kind of teaching is that it undermined the traditional way of, of the gospel formation that had been in people's lives up to this point because he tried to turn revival into science. He said anyone can have a revival at any time. All you have to do is these following things. You do this, you do that, you do that, you get people together and you can have a revival. So immediately, for me, as a, a person who's more of a reformed, reformed uh, theological position, that undermines the sovereignty of God. I believe sovereign, God sovereignly moves on people. All right, and so the other people that would um, uh, agree with that. So traditionally, Christian growth was gradual. How am I doing? I've got, can I take another two, three minutes? It's 10.45, is that okay? Okay, traditionally, uh, Christian growth had been gradual. Um, It focused on the whole family. It focused on teaching in local churches that families were transformed, uh, individuals were transformed as the gospel was just preached into people's lives. And revivalism under Finney took the emphasis off of that onto meetings where you, where you, um, you um, drove for, an, for a decision that people would be saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it became less long-term and became more short-term. It took something of the emphasis off the sovereignty of God and placed it onto what we can do as human beings. And so this is one of the reasons, no, not exclusively, but it's one of the reasons that we now have a highly individualistic, a highly consumeristic, church-going, church-hopping Christian population. And the ultimate expression of what I'm trying to say is that in the last five years, I've seen this increasingly of people saying, I don't need church, I don't need leaders, I just need to walk by the Spirit and I can do this on my own. And so we have this highly individualistic uh, spirituality which just says, I don't need the church at all, all I need is Jesus. I love the church but I don't love the leaders. Have you heard that kind of talk? This is the ultimate expression of this kind of, this kind of thing. And so it says, 
what I'm trying to say, we, people go to church where the coffee's good. People go to church where the worship is good because they're moved by the worship. People go to church where their social needs are met. And I love all of these things, so I'm not saying they're not good. But what undergirds, the mindset that undergirds everything is the personal experience of the person. As long as my needs are met, as long as I'm satisfied, then it's okay. Rather than the truth of the gospel being formed in us, and as it's in us, it transforms us from the inside out. You hearing what I'm trying to say? And that's why Martin Lloyd-Jones from Westminster Chapel was loath to say that we could do anything to bring revival except pray. I've run out of time. But there are five factors that I'd just like to mention, and maybe you could go in your own reading and go and some, have a look at these things uh, for yourself. Because there are a number of things that are present when a community is revived. And there's a guy called William Sprague who wrote a book called Lectures on Revivals of Religion in 1832. And he said, as he was living in revival and experiencing revival for himself, he said there are five things that we can look for, all right? They don't necessarily bring revival, but they are evident where there is revival. And the first, I'm just going to mention them because I've run out of time. The first is extraordinary prayer. When a community is revived, it prays. It wants to pray. It prays in, its, in people's homes that people pray together. They pray in the morning. They pray in the evening. They get to church. There's extraordinary prayer. Don't want to talk much about that. Secondly, there's a rediscovery of the grace gospel. That's what motivated Wesley Whitfield. That's what motivated uh, Jonathan Edwards. In fact, the thing that sparked the revival in the Eastern Seaboard was uh, one of Edwards' sermons called Justification by Faith Alone, November 1734, and it sparked a revival. It was a rediscovery of the gospel of grace. And thirdly, renewed individuals. What I mean by that? Well, churches are revived as the leaders start to come alive. There's personal revival in them, and there's infectious revival in people personally and then it flows from them to other individuals sometimes there's radical conversions for example the person you least think is going to get saved they get saved and suddenly that sparks something in people and people get excited and there's this growing sense of God's doing something and it begins to spread from one individual to the other it's a great sense of spiritual longing fourthly both uh, John Newton and Sprague say this, that even in counseling, the gospel is applied to the heart. And that's another, another, another expression of, uh, of what happens in revival. So seekers, new believers, non-growing Christians, how we counsel them, we counsel them with the gospel. And lastly, ordinary instituted means of grace. What do I mean by that? Ongoing preaching, pastoring, worship, prayer. These things continue. What I also want to just leave with you as my last point is that sometimes people associate meetings too closely with revival. So example, um, Lloyd-Jones points to a particular thing that happened because he was Welsh and he, he lived through something of those revivals. And in Wales, people began to say, you can, you can, revival can only come if you sing these kind of hymns and you have these kind of meetings and you do these kind of things. So that they got more concerned with the process rather than with what God had for them. For example, also in New York in 1857, they used to have midday public prayer meetings, and these were part of revival that sparked revival. It was another means that God used. All I'm trying to say to you is let's not get too concerned with the vehicles that God uses. Let's be seeking God himself as we trust him for revival, a deep longing in our hearts for him to come, a community saturated with the presence of God.
Can we pray? Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the truth of your word. I want to thank you, Lord, that you've revived churches before. I want to thank you, Lord, that you've revived nations again. And Lord, as we live in this amazing nation where you've done so much in the past, Lord, I, I want to pray that you would encourage every one of us this morning that what you've done in the past, you can do again. I thank you that you transformed the whole of the early church through 12 men fully believing that you were the Messiah and you were who you said you were. And they believed you. And you poured yourself out upon them in power and the whole of the early Roman Empire was transformed. Lord, that encourages us so deeply. We look, we look at, at what Wesley did and, and Woodfield and Jonathan Edwards and these great moves of your spirit in the past. And God, we, just, we cry to you this morning and say, Lord, let it happen again in our generation. Let it happen with us. I pray for this church, Lord. I thank you for the amazing testimony of the vineyard. I pray, Lord, that you revive every individual in this church. Wherever we are with you, Lord, we want to be deeper. Wherever we are with you, Lord, we want more of you. We want more of your presence. We want more of your hand upon our lives transforming us. God, I pray that this community would become known as a community that is saturated with the presence of God. I pray that many would be saved. Thank you for every single person that has been saved, but I pray for many, many, many more that you'd radically increase the growth of this church because of what you do through her and in her. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. God bless you.